Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Oh, Ryan! This is Buddy Franklin! This is the greatest showman! Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Randall Gazzarioli. Oh, who else? McDonald. Timberwolf. From inside the centre square. time of day everyone in terms of time of day for us it's approaching 3 a.m california time oh boy, 3 but this is what we do for the footy because we wanted to wait to do this semifinals preview episode 136 until we had the lists out and uh yeah they've been out for a little under 90 minutes now benjamin castle alongside my brother ethan in south san francisco california which is not directly south of San Francisco. I mean, it is south, but it's not, like, directly adjacent. It's There's another Daly City's between us. And if you've heard of Daly City, it's probably because you know about how ridiculously foggy it is. Or you just know a lot of Filipino people. People in the Philippines probably know Daly City. People in China and Taiwan probably know Milbright. So as we do this preview, we only have two games to preview, but we also have two autopsies. We have corpses to exhume. Yeah, post-mortems for the two clubs that bowed out in week one of finals in both of the elimination finals. So not let the necrophiles listen to this episode. So without further ado, the Sydney Swans were the first team eliminated from finals. They finished eighth at the home and away at 12-10-1 with a percentage of 110. They lost to the Blues in the first elimination final. You may forget they were atop the ladder after round two. They bludgeoned the Suns and Hawks. Then, as injuries set in, they lost six of their next seven games, and the only win in that span was in the Gather round. against a very undisciplined Richmond side. Hard to believe that Richmond went to shit in that game when they took Trent Cotchin out. Yeah, almost like we could have seen it coming. That was also the game I remember where Joel Marty got injured after starting really well. I think he had two goals early on, and then did his hamstring. Now, that said, during that stretch where they lost six out of seven. They had a two-point loss to Port thanks to a Lear on the goal line and a one-point loss to the Giants where they were down early, got up four goals, and then pissed it away late. After a round nine loss to the Dockers, they fell to three and six and looked seriously fucked. Then the next week, the interchange violation saved them. This was actually a really interesting Swans team. They had a couple of two-point wins in the latter half of the season. They had the draw against Geelong that, by all means, they should have won. And then the now infamous win over the Crows in round 23. But that was the last of six consecutive wins for them that secured them their final spot. They were in 15th after round 17 before rattling off those six wins in a row. Here's the thing. There was obviously a lot of talk about how the Crows should have been in over them. But that's a big but. This is a team that lost a couple of games they should have won, won a couple of games they should have lost. I think in a lot of ways, things kind of evened out. Which is kind of amazing considering only five Swans played all 24 of their games. Those being Nick Blakey, Harry Cunningham, Ollie Floyd, Errol Golden, and James Robottom. All extremely important in their own right. When they had those defensive absences, at a time you had all of Callum Mills, Dane Rampey, and Tom McCartan out, Cunningham's importance was very clear between one-on-one and some of the run-and-carry job, him and Blakey helping up, helping with that. He's 29 is still keeping up there. And then you also saw Lewis Melkin displaying his potential as a key defender, though he had limited time himself with a hamstring injury. So impressive that the Swans got where they did with how many defensive outs they had throughout the year. Yeah, the thing with this Swans team, they had health issues. They had lineup flux every week after last year. They were in very good health. You know, that's one of those things that tends to regress one way or the other. Injury luck and luck in close games tend to not be sustainable year in and year out. That said, they ended up kind of breaking even in close games, maybe even breaking slightly ahead. 
if you just look at final margins, they were 4-2-1 and one in games decided by less than a goal. Oh, yeah, seven games decided by less than a goal. This was a really eventful team, whereas last year, a lot of the time in the latter half of the season, just kind of looked at them and our recaps were like, yep, they're good. Baron Golden's really good. Callum Mills was really good. I mean, those things are both very true. And as much as Golden could have had a breakout year this year, he definitely did. Need a starter on the All-Australian team. They're leading disposal getter by 100. Fourth on the team in clearances. Fifth in goals. His kicking all over the ground is excellent. And he's got the speed to boot. So I insist that he's going to be a Brownlow medalist. After last year, people would think maybe Chad Warner, but I think Golden's the more level-headed player and is a more reliable kick as well. And also more midfield-based, whereas Warner sometimes plays more forward. I mean, 22 goals for Golden, though. Nothing to scoff at. And Warner was on the 22-22 team again and was number three on the team in clearances. It went Luke Parker, James Robottom, Chad Warner. And Robottom, by the way, fifth in tackles in the league for home and away. That's just like the most unsurprising thing. He tackles dudes and he gets contested possessions. His sister plays just like it too. If you watch AFL Women's, take a look at the Suns. Charlie plays the same way. The real changes though for the Swans this year came in the forward line. With Buddy out and now retired, you had this trio of young talls come to the forefront. And we talked about one of them already, Joel Marty, who had 20 goals in 15 games. I'm surprised it didn't end up being more. He had some really... Big performances, you know, like three, four goal games and still only finished with 20. That's kind of hard to believe. Four in that round two win over the Hawks before getting subbed out. Also four against the Eagles and four against the Bombers. That Essendon game, it was a close one. So it's not like he was just doing this against bad teams, although Essendon had an inability to stop tall forwards all year. That is true. Anyway, just for him to have three games with four and then... Only eight the rest of the way. Yeah, and in the game he got subbed out, he had a couple. It's weird. But he's also not the primary target that you might have thought he'd have been because Hayden McLean is there. He's also been their most reliable ruck option this year with Tom Ickey being out and now retiring. Yeah, their deployment of McLean was really interesting. I'm curious what they're going to do with that moving forward. Do they keep using him as kind of a half ruck, half forward, or do they... You know, work in Peter Adams or add Brody Grundy or... Sounds like they're in the driver's seat for Grundy. Sounds like that'll that's all but decided at this point with Port taking themselves out of the race. I think that's a bit of an indictment against Laddams, even with the injuries he had this year. But I think McLean's split between Ruck and Ford will continue. Yeah, very capable, contested mark. We saw that especially late in the season. And it's nice that you don't have to be the primary target when you've got Amarty and Logan McDonald also in the mix. McDonald was second on the team with 32 goals in 20 games. Tom Papley, I believe, led them with 37. Did you know he likes celebrating? Papley? Oh, wait, what? Yeah. This, this isn't mentioned, though. No, it, it's not. I think Papley was almost a main character in the... Gather round. But that ended up going to Mr. All Teams Should Merge. A deserving winner. In fact, my favorite, maybe my favorite highlight of the entire season, like... I know there are other recurring fans like Magpie Jesus that deserve a lot of credit. Or Jake Rippon. I'm really hoping when they do, you know, the you know, the kind of like little brief video of each round before they read off the Brownlow votes that for the Gather round. They have to show that guy, right? I think they won't for some reason. If they do, I'm gonna be like the meme of a Leo DiCaprio pointing at the screen. The point is though, talking about these three young forwards, you know, they don't need to have that one target anymore. Buddy's gone, but they're not hurting for goal kickers on the tall side or on the small side between Papley, Isaac Heaney, Golden, Warner when he kicks straight. It's really just going to be a matter of figuring out the hierarchy. I think the positions they really need to figure out are in the ruck and a little bit defensively where I think at times, you know, Dean Rampey wasn't as, you know, the late game clutch god that he was last year. And he's still getting older. Robbie Fox, maybe not as reliable. Lewis Jake Lloyd was Lloyd was a more reliable defender. Um, he had the ball a lot, but I don't know if not I, the tests. He was great. Yeah, not as much of a tall contest player. That's where I think Lewis Belkin will need to get some more time. I think he's already 26, though, so maybe look for a bit of a younger solution there. 
I still think overall, though, this is a team that's in really good shape moving forward. I think there's a good chance they move back into the top four next year. If you had to predict, you would expect, you know, your typical top four has, what, two holdovers, one team that was fifth through eighth, and one that missed the eighth. So Collingwood, one of Melbourne or Brisbane, Brisbane, Sydney, Adelaide. One of Adelaide or Geelong, yeah. As I said, with Adelaide, I think their percentage goes down a bit, but their place goes up. We talked about them in our So You Didn't Crack the Eight. I think the Swans, like I've said, they have the pieces to succeed long-term. What's interesting is that their struggles this year, you know, there was no sort of like grand final hangover other than maybe round six when they got absolutely shitted on at Geelong. That is definitely shitted on with three Ds. I think it with two Ts. Uh, for how bad it was, I would say three Ds. Either way, it, it was bad. Yeah, um... But I mean, maybe a bit of a shorter offseason could have contributed to some of the injuries or the recovery time required there. Um, I think if this is kind of their bump in the road over this kind of window, they're in very good shape. It's just at some point within the next few years, they got to win one. They got to win another under Longmire. There's rumors that he may have two years left before Dean Cox takes over as a succession plan. That hasn't been confirmed by anyone. What has been confirmed, other than the, the three retirements of Buddy, Tom Hickey, and Patty McCartan that Dylan Stevens has requested a trade to North had been in and out of the side for the past four years, really, since being drafted fifth overall. So maybe they could gain a bit of draft capital there. And who knows if they actually do get Ben McKay, although Essendon are now rumored to be in the driver's seat, which I find really funny. He would be the main defender there, yes. He's been the most logical fit, and we've talked about that, like, for how long? At the same time, though, if he wants to win... I don't know, there's some thought, you know, he can be a great player, just put him on a better team, you know, put him in a situation where he's contending. Yeah, Sydney is a good team. They're contending. I know, but Essendon just seemed like such an obvious fit, and it's more its more what the team needs rather than what the player needs in that case. Hayden McLean, by the way, was my sleeper for the Swans. I think I did a very good job with that, given the, the way we talked about him, the split he had. I think, was he the, the in for the grand final last year? I think he was when they had questions about Sam Reed's health. And, oh yeah, he didn't play at all this year. That's something that'll help him next year up front. Well, well, we'll see if he's back. There's potential. Who was your sleeper, Ethan? Mine was Angus Sheldrick. He played seven games. One where he was subbed off. One where he was subbed in. In the games he didn't play in full, he averaged a hair over 20 disposals. I actually really liked his work as an inside midfielder. I think he's still got a lot of room to grow. I think next year is really his breakout year. I think I might have just been a year early. In that case, I think that's a good pick as well. And with Luke Parker continuing to age, maybe he'll be pushed more outside and maybe a bit toward the wing. So more opportunities for Sheldrick to be part of that inside mix with Robottom, feeding out to guys like Warner, or really the Warners, if Corey gets into the side as well, Errol Golden, etc. And now, Saints. I'm done with predicting what St. Kilda are going to do. I was wrong at the start of last season, I was wrong in the middle of last season, and I was wrong this year. I'm just, I'm going to let Benjamin do all of these Saints predicting from now on, because, I mean, I, no matter what I expect about this team, I get it wrong. I was wrong as well. I was thinking that this could have been a bottom three side. I thought this was a wooden spoon contender, and instead they finished sixth. They were in the eight all year. They were 13 and 10 with a 107.8 percentage. They didn't put up a particularly good fight against the Giants, and I think it would have been easy to call them the weakest team that made the eight, but nonetheless, they exceeded expectations. Even the biggest Saints fans probably would have had them around, like, what, seventh, eighth at best? And they earned themselves a home final. They won five of their first six games, which set them up to stay in the eight all year. They were atop the ladder after Anzac weekend, and that one loss was a close one in the Gather round. where they nearly came back in the last minute against Collingwood. It was kind of like a reverse of a typical Collingwood win. Then they didn't win consecutive games again until they beat two of the bottom three in rounds 19 and 20. They had a loss to the Hawks in that stretch before they did beat them in the second go around. Oh, they went... Five and three against the four teams of the bottom six with whom they doubled up. They split against Richmond, Gold Coast, and Hawthorne and swept north. This team definitely benefited from an easier schedule. I think it wasn't just 
the double ups. Although, again, doubling up against those four ended up working out quite well. The others, by the way, they played Brisbane twice. Lost to them both times. And split with Carlton. Yeah, there there were three and six against other finalists. The wins were against the Blues, Giants in home and away, and the Swans. All three of those actually technically road games, and well, two of them were real road games. Maybe it would have been better for the Saints to have played their final in New South Wales then. What I find so strange about this Saints team is that they clearly know how to play fast as well as slow, but it seems like they didn't know when it was best to do either of those because there was about a three-month stretch where they forgot how to play fast. Frostball really set in near the middle of the season, and that was even once they had Max King back in the fold. We saw both the good and bad of Rossball. Good because they could really shut teams down if they had the multi-goal lead late. Bad because it's not a particularly fun thing to watch, and at times they just couldn't score, couldn't capitalize on forward 50 entries. I think you had said they were the worst team at turning forward 50 entries into scores for the year. Is that right? Uh, it was something close to it. If they weren't the worst for the whole year, then they were the worst on the in like the back half of the year. They also were barely second to last in terms of clearance average per game, just ahead of Essendon. Which is kind of hard to believe because they've got some really solid midfielders. Jack Steele is a damn good player. I love what Mason Wood and Seb Ross both do. Yeah, well, Steele, in my opinion, is still an underrated captain. I think he was, he may have been top 10 in the Brownlow two years ago. Yeah, I... But um, Wood had a great start to the season and really was kind of a barometer for the team as a whole. This year, Ross was out at times with a hamstring injury. Was Brad Crouch, who was among their more reliable midfielders and half forwards on the inside. And then on the outside, it was more of all-Australian Jack Sinclair playing further downfield. By the way, I'm still not a fan of his mullet, but the mustache helps. I think it's just the mullet doesn't work with his hairline, but he's a damn good player, just a you know, you think about like a ball moving defender instead of, you know, a guy who gets into marking contests and he is so good at it. He gets the ball out to the wing. He's smooth along the boundary. He's a very accurate kick. He really liked his performance. Been playing more and more into the forward half as well. And I think Nazai Wagenin Miller's development has helped with that. Wagenin Miller, already third on the team in disposals and a super reliable kick from the back for a 20 year old, fittingly, was named a starter in the 22 under 22 squad. I believe in the back pocket. Pocket. You want to talk about, you know, the other type of defender from Sinclair? That would obviously be Callum Wilkie, who was a shutdown one-on-one guy. He was aimed to the All-Australian squad, very deservedly so. I would say, like, look, long-term, you look at overall body of work over multiple years, I think Tom Stewart and Sam Taylor are the best of them, but I would put Wilkie right up there after what he did this season alone. Going back at the 2020 season, he I think he may have been rated the best one-on-one defender of the league. So I want to go back and review some of his work from then when the Saints were their best under Brett Ratton. And there's no shortage of younger talent on this side as well. I believe looking at the future of the Saints is really going to come down to the younger talent, especially the mix of the aforementioned Isaiah Wangany Miller, Mitch Owens, Anthony Caminiti, Matthias Filippo. I think whether or not this team can make a finals run next year, and oh God, I'm already trying to make a prediction about them, but I think this is actually a very fair thing to predict. For them to be in the eight next year, it's going to require those four to continue progressing instead of having a sophomore slump. I believe that those guys are going to be very good players, but sophomore slumps exist in pretty much every sport. And a lot of times that's, you know, You've had your first offseason, the league's adjusted to you, you're getting a sense of the grind, they're getting a sense of your strengths and weaknesses. At the same time, when you're thinking about Owens, he has already had an offseason under his belt. I believe he played seven games in 2022 before playing 23 this past year, only missing one to that ridiculous head knock he suffered against the Giants. And we thought he was fucked up. We thought he was late. You're going to tell me like, oh, his brain is an eggplant now. Nope, he came back and finished third in Rising Star Bowling. The guy's fearless. Not only that, he watched the rest of that game from the bat. They like looked at him in the rooms were like, all right, you're not playing next week. Like, okay, I'm going to go watch the game. And he also pinch hits in the rock and is one of their more reliable marks. I've said, and I've said from the beginning with Owens, for a guy who's 6'3", he plays taller. And you mentioned Anthony Caminiti. 
Last guy on the list as a supplemental, 19 years old, never had more than two goals in a game, but 19 goals in 18 games. You know why he didn't play all 23 games? Uh, well, a couple of them he was omitted, but for three of them, he was suspended for fucking up Nathan Murphy in the... Gather He's got to learn how to manage his temper a little bit, but he was also initially suspended a game for a hit on Sicily before that was downgraded. But he's got the talent. And, and a pretty reliable set shot as well. I think he kicked something like 19 goals, 9. Then thinking about going slightly older for them, a couple 23-year-olds in opposite 50s. Cooper Sharon became an important set shot later in the year. And then Liam Stalker, another supplemental pickup, probably because Steven Silvani's back there now, but a surprising one to find at 10th on the team in disposals. This is the guy that Carlton fans were all excited about in past years, and now he's living up to it for a different team. I, I kind of like it. And meanwhile, the Blues are still succeeding. Which, I don't like that part. But Stalker and Wanganine Miller are the smaller ones in the back pockets, helping feed out from marks from Wilkie, Josh, what's a battle? There's more of a structure there than I think people realized. And it, I think it's fun to ask. Oh, wait. Forgot to mention, uh, who's that other guy that they have going back in defense and helping with the marks? Uh, Rowan Marshall? Yeah, how about Rowan Marshall? Tough to miss out on the All-Australian team, but tough to fit in multiple rucks there when Tim English was such an easy pick. Yeah. Yeah, between, like, like look, English and Max Gone are kind of the class of the competition. Gone's hamstring injury didn't help his cause. But Marshall averaging 26 hitouts a game as the main ruck again for the first time going into the season since, I guess, 2019, and then still having his impact throughout the ground. I think it, it would be a little unfair to just describe him as poor man's Tim English, because first off, he would be like upper middle class man's Tim English, because Tim English is, you know, the guy with like five mansions and a uh, balloon slash casino. So Tim English is Squilliam fancy son? Where's the unibrow? No, I think it's like Squilliam has Tim English. And then just like, the guy is doing pretty well for himself as Rowan Marshall. But what I think was so interesting about Marshall's season is the way he kind of reinvented himself. As the year went on, his hitout numbers were not so high, but he was affecting the game in all parts of the ground. And you know, we have said, even though we were both very down on this team at the start of the year, we had both said he's going to have to do a lot with Patty Ryder gone. And he did, and then some, and ended up taking on kind of a different role than he did in the past where it was like I think he learned kind of how to manage his energy and stamina and impact the game all over the ground I I really like how he played and with the emergence of Caminiti and Owens continued rise and once Max King came back in round 10 they didn't need him to be that forward support as much and so he went back my question going into 2024 and beyond though is is there merit in casting another true ruck type alongside him maybe someone like Jack, 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 Jack Hayes to allow Marshall more of that roving ability? Or is that just a spot on the list that needs to be used elsewhere? I mean, I think Hayes is a good player and that would also allow Marshall to kind of do more, I guess, like blitz-obsy. Yeah, more blitz type stuff. There are some interesting decisions to be made there and I don't know how some of those fit with Ross Ball. For example, Ross Ball seems to be very anti-having a tagger, which really hurt them in finals. I mean, it hurt them a number of times throughout the year, and by the time they realized a tag on Josh Kelly was necessary in the second half of finals. I mean, you could also put it on Tom Green in theory. Once Canelio was declared out, it was pretty clear it would be Josh Kelly, in my opinion. Once they realized it, though, they put Marcus Windhager on him already too late. I'm a big fan of using Windhager as a tagger. I think you know, there are some very good taggers out there. Mark O'Connor, Finn McGinnis is obviously already up at the top of that. But yeah, don't sleep on Windhaker. He's another of that younger wave of Saints that, even though I think the way they played this year didn't quite play to his strengths, can be a really solid player for them. Although I think there's definitely a possibility in the coming years that if he wants to be just like an elite tagger and wants that to be his role, he could eventually look to move elsewhere to, you know, a system that will deploy a tagger more often. Hmm, sounds like something Chris Scott would appreciate. Let's see, he is from Melbourne, so let's see, played for played for the Sandrium Dragons. But yeah, I am we're we're I am big on Marcus Windhager. I think we both are. We're big on Marcus, we're big on Marshall, and we're big on Max King if he hits his first set shot. The the future of this team is 
really interesting, especially now that they'll actually probably do off-season stuff. They they didn't last year. Their one move was trading Ben Long away. And also bring in Zane Cordy, who did provide also some good defensive support at times. So that actually that actually helped them a bit more than I think people may credit them for doing. But yeah, they, they actually have their coach and their footy department in place. So they've already delisted four guys. Uh, three of them got AFL games with the club. Most notably among them, it's Jack Bytel. I think Bytel is actually a really quality player, just couldn't stay healthy. And I think he's going to get a chance somewhere and hopefully just, you know, a team where they can afford to kind of manage their resources to focusing on, hey, if we can get this guy healthy, he can be really good for us. Yeah, he's from a northwestern suburb of Melbourne. I I wouldn't be shocked to see a club like the Hawks take him on. I wouldn't be shocked if the Caps were interested. And we don't know what Jade Gresham's status is. Essendon could be in on him. Ross Linus said he's met with other clubs. He's doing what he should be doing as a restricted free agent. One other delisted player I wanted to mention real quick, Jack Paris only played in one game this year, but uh, one of the top performing fantasy teams this year was named People in Paris. Well, who was in Paris? Don't say it, Kramer. <laughs> one guy that is expected to come in, though, uh, Liam Henry. Yeah, I find this a bit of a strange fit. I actually can understand it if they want him to be as a, a halfback and a, or a wing playing opposite Jackson Clare. Maybe have him be a guy that for now links up with Brad Hill, who's still quite capable into his early 30s before maybe eyeing him to take on Hill's role once he bows it out. I guess this team could use a little help with smaller defenders, but when you already have a really good ball-moving defender like Sinclair... And when Stalker is at high disposals, it, it, is, it that, seems like there are other teams that could utilize Henry more. Well, that's what that's why I'm thinking he's going to end up being that truer wing, maybe playing more along the center line. So I think having Brad Hill there with him, I think Hill could be a great mentor for him for a role that I could see really fitting him and one that the Saints could use in these next three, four years. I just want to mention again how we spent a lot of time previously talking about like why are they you know why are Frio playing Liam Henry this guy isn't good well it turns out he just wasn't a good forward when you moved him to kind of a halfback ball moving role he's really good once again I think I aced my sleeper pick with Caminiti which I went off from just one preseason outing once he was signed I was surprised that you considered Hunter Clark a sleeper but I guess when he'd been so injury riddled in the early part of his career and going into his into his age 24 season Turned out to be an all right pick. Yeah, he got in to a career-high 19 games, was sixth on the team in clearances, though he only had 52 of them. So again, that shows the the issue with clearances for him. One of the faster players, like even though this team often played a slower style, they have speed. And when they utilize it well, I think they kind of flip the switch there. I really like what they do. And I'm obviously much more optimistic about the Saints heading into next year. I'm not going to predict where they're going to end up as a team anymore because I'm going to get it wrong. But what I do feel confident in is that if they are going to be successful, it's going to rely on that young crop not really having like a sophomore slump. That I feel good about. So those are so those are our post-mortems for these two finalists. Uh, six more of them to go, I guess, between these next couple previews and then I guess after the, the grand final recap. We're going to step aside for a moment, gather our thoughts before previewing these two semifinal matchups. Don't forget, we are on Twitter, at Americans Footy. Personally, I am at Castle Media. I am at BenjaminHK01. Brian Harambe, the footy cat, is currently chilling in the windowsill. Care to join him? He's on Instagram at cat named Brian. Why are there ovens coming out of your windowsill, Ethan? Why do they call it oven when you oven the cold food of out hot eat the food? Has anyone really been far even as decided to use even go want to do look more like? Okay, that just sounds like it was from an iPhone's autocomplete function. What's it from? I think it's just another copy pasta. Yeah, it, it sounds like it was from an iPhone autocomplete. Now, I don't want to waste much time here. I'm going to be going and editing right after this, and I don't want to have to cut out unnecessary things like me saying the same thing twice in a row. Me saying the same thing twice in a row. Oh, Brian's actually just come down from the uh, windowsill, so maybe he wants to chime in as we talk about the first semifinal, which will be happening uh, less than 24 hours from the time that we're recording this, about 
23 hours when Melbourne played Carlton at the G. 7.50 p.m. local time in Australia. For Americans, 5.50 a.m. Eastern, 2.50 a.m. Pacific. Both semifinals, as all of the qualifying and elimination finals were, will be on FS2. In fact, I think that's where all the prelims will be as well. The grand final, apparently, will be on Fox Sports 1. I kind of like having games on FS2. You know, FS1, yes, it's available to more people, but I like being able to refer to people as peasants. I don't just want the peasants to be able to watch the grand final, though. Yeah, that's that's true. The Ds, if you recall, they were fourth on the ladder, lost to Collingwood by seven. Carlton were fifth. They defeated Sydney by six. These teams met back in round 22. Melbourne had won eight straight head-to-head meetings, but Carlton won this one by four. That was the game with the, you know, did Caleb Marchbank touch the Petraka kick? It stood on umpire's call. If it did touch him, it either hit his elbow or knee. We've, we've discussed it. It's been discussed enough. I'm sure they'll show it a billion times leading up to this game. What probably isn't discussed enough are the other things that helped the Blues in that game. Like, I remember, was it a high contact call that bailed him out at one point, and then Max Gollum not getting a free in the dying seconds because really inside 30 seconds, unless you actually decapitate someone, you can probably get away with it? Yeah, that was not a well-umpired game. The The March Bank call was one that could have gone either way. At the same There time, were other, like, explicit terrible calls. At the same time, the deserve a meter in that game did lean toward the Blues. For the dominance they had in the first quarter, they, they could have put it away then had they kicked accurately. It was 9-6 to six at quarter time. Yeah, that was, everyone was watching the Women's World Cup at that point, but Carlton should have been up way more. It ended up being a really entertaining finish after the midsection of the game was really boring. Oh, right, that was the, the night with the, the record-breaking 10-round shootout. That is fun. I liked how Watch AFL was ahead of like our local Fox affiliate showing soccer, so... We got the reaction at the G before we got the penalty kick on TV. I think at that point, I actually had muted the AFL feed to just take in the Matilda's shootout. So the whole thing was a fun experience. Yeah, it was. Um, What else was fun for the Blues in that game in round 22? They realized, wait a minute, George Hewitt should never be the sub. Yeah, he's way too good to just be a sub. Then again, you could say that about Patty Dow, but that's probably where he's going to find himself this week. These teams haven't met in finals, though, since uh, 2000. Both those teams have had their down periods, obviously, in the past couple decades. In that last finals meeting, a qualifying final 23 years ago, the Demons won by nine off the back of first-year forward Brad Green. Melbourne then made the grand final only to get smacked by that legendary Essendon team. Lineup changes this week for Melbourne. No Angus Brayshaw after he was concussed in that Brayden Maynard spoil. He got off. He got off. He got off is basically how Eddie reacted. I don't get why people were mad about that. Like, he's supporting his team. He was the president of the club. Yeah. Uh, Jacob Van Royen serving that one game suspension for the high bump on Dan McStay that I feel one game was definitely the appropriate discipline there. And then no Michael Hibbert, who's going to be retiring after this season. He's an emergency, but apparently he's nursing somewhat of an Achilles injury. Still, though, this would prevent him from getting to game 200. An Achilles injury? Well, I don't know Greek mythology very well. It's kind of my Achilles elbow. That's terrible. That was a good dad joke. Hey, Rudy might have actually been the one who shared that. I'm not sure. I, I forget where I saw it. I wish I could give credit. I like crediting people. You don't want to be Sniper Wolf? I do not want to be Sissa Sniper Wolf. Stop stealing. I am firmly on Team Jidja Jacks films. I, I mean, we both are. Anyway, James Jordan, Charlie Spargo, and Adam Tomlinson are in. Those, I guess, aren't really surprising other than maybe Tomlinson. I think with Hibbert going out, that was kind of to be expected. Really, where else would you fit things in there? If you want, I mean, you could move Joel Smith back. I mean, he's already there. Um, I just doubt the retention of Tom McDonald because he looked slow as I kind of expected in the qualifier and was invisible the first three quarters. Yeah, I think Melbourne's biggest concern heading into this game are the two Toms, McDonald and Linson. Uh, uh, I mean, I mean, Tomlinson hasn't been punked in defense nearly as much as he did last year. I mean, thinking about the games that he had, for example, King's birthday, he did all right. Against Darcy Fogarty for Adelaide, he did all right. Still, I just, against this forward line, I'd be concerned. 
especially when you need some of that size. Well, maybe not as much with Harry Mackay out concussed, but uh, would it be, you think, Jake Lever taking that main matchup with Charlie Curno with May as a rover? Yeah, I don't think you really put May into those one-on-ones. Now, Clayton Oliver's going to play through knee soreness. Max Gaughan is playing through a broken bone in his toe, to which he responded to a tweet about it, about how often he goes to the bathroom, which I don't really get how that followed. I mean, it was funny, but it just seemed like it didn't really connect. I think maybe it's just like everybody's playing through something at this time of year. It's not that big of a deal. I don't know. My my favorite injury updates ever were the ones former Major League pitcher Brandon McCarthy gave after a liner to the head. I think it was Buster Olney gave updates on him and... You know, it's like Brandon McCarthy is conscious and in stable condition. And McCarthy responds, he is also peeing into a bucket next to his bed. When he got discharged from the hospital, he asked for a three-way. Very good. You know, he, no better time to ask. Oh, and, and I believe he finished his career with, what, a 4.20 ERA? Yes, he finished his career with 69 wins and a 4.20 ERA. In nicest career ever. Elite career. But yeah, Carlton, uh, Jack Silvani's going to be ruled out. He passed a fitness test, but... At least, unless there's a late change isn't going to be in there. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it. Meanwhile, I think it's just one of those, you know, physically he's there, but there's an aspect of getting up to game speed that's difficult. Exactly, yeah. That's, I mean, we've seen that. Like, I think about Jed Buse between having a bunch of weeks off and then his first game back at AFL level versus a week later. So, so Bonnie will be out, so no tall cover there for Harry McKay. Jack Martin's two-game suspension for striking Nick Blakey was downgraded to one, which I think is the correct decision there. No issue with that. So, with Martin out, Jesse Motlop comes back into the 22, but I think the more like-for-like there is the inclusion of Matt Kennedy for the first time since round 17. We've seen him have those four midfield splits. He's been played really all over the Oval, but he was miscast in defense earlier this year, and I think they've learned from that mistake. That was around the time we're just Nearly everything was going wrong for the Blues. We were wondering, why is he with the sub? Why is Kennedy playing back? And so yeah, he- there, were, there were a lot of things that didn't make sense, and then they made a team that was much more logical and look at the result. I mean, none of us saw it going this well, but putting guys in the right place seems to have its benefit. And who's really lifted with some of the tall issues when Mackay was out in the first place, for example, and then as ruck cover as well as Tom DeConing. He's likely to spend some more time forward in Mackay's absence with Mark Pitnett staying in. Pitnett against Gone, even with Gone's broken bone, I think I'd back in Gone there. I mean, Pitnett's a good hit-to-advantage guy, but I'd take my chances with Gone over him. Yeah, I think it would be hard not to. I mean, the, there are only a couple of people I wouldn't take Gone against. Maybe Tim English. Roland Marshall. Maybe even, even that. Toby Conway in two years. Yeah. Where this game will be won and lost, though, is in the defensive groups between being able to match up with Kerno for Melbourne and then for the Blues, just limiting the amount of Demons marks in general. There was a great stat that I saw from an SEN article. I think it was Brenton Sanderson, the old Crows coach that mentioned this. Yeah, they average 93 marks in the forward half in the games they win and 62 in the games they lose. So that's a one-third difference right there. So you limit the amount of four and a half marks, and you can beat Melbourne. Now, the question is, does that involve more defenders really going further upfield to limit their entries, or what's the deal there? I think, I mean, I I think this goes in line with what I was saying last week with how Melbourne need to stop just bombing it into packs and use more of the running ability of guys like, well, the inclusion in James Jordan, um, the running ability in Kate Chandler, for example. Here's one of the things that makes this so interesting. When Carlton played Melbourne the first time, They had all sorts of trouble capitalizing on entries early in the game. Last week against Collingwood, Melbourne had trouble capitalizing on entries in the final three quarters. And meanwhile, the other game they played this year was just not pretty, these two. That Thursday nighter. I only remember that for for Van Royen having a good game. Thinking back to that round 12 game, it was just not pretty footy. 61 to 44. Was Was it raining or was it just shitty? I don't recall weather. I just recall... Bad footy, where the only person who scored three goals in the game was surprisingly enough Harry Mackay. Oh, that was like right in the middle of his stretch. Where he, I think he still had some bad misses, but he also did get a couple. That was he kicked that three, was not good footy. He kicked three two, and was like, oh, was he actually fixed by kicking three goals? One week later, nope, he's not fixed. But yeah, I, I didn't even want to talk about that matchup because it was so ugly. It it was bad. 
So both meetings they've had this year have had some ugly stretches. The last one had some great late drama, but like the second quarter of that last game was really bad. So I, I hope this one's more compelling instead of just at the end. This might be one of those games where you could take a nap in the middle, not miss all that much, and then, you know, get your money's worth just watching the fourth quarter. Lines have not moved for either of these games since the lists came out, so maybe just some of the platforms are slow to update. Here are the states, but it's a six and a half point Melbourne favorite right now. I have no idea how to read this. I don't know. I'm just whoever I'd favor, I'd make it about a three to four point line. I want to wait. Gone and Oliver's injuries into this more, but I expect a stronger contest game from Jack Viney. The issue there is that they won't have the support of Brayshaw. So I just, I I hope I'm wrong, but I think the injuries, especially in the forward line, are going to be too much for Melbourne to overcome. Lose by 11. I just hope that it's an entertaining four quarters and not just an entertaining fourth quarter. I think it'll be an entertaining second quarter and second quarter only. That's like the least likely quarter to be good. Exactly. Your other semifinal, we head to the Adelaide Oval for one last Never Tear Us Apart, and it will be properly at night, because that, it, it hits way better at night. If the Power make a grand final, will the fans just sing it in the minutes before the bounce anyway, as Time by Pink Floyd plays? That would be so cool. I, I mean, I feel like they'd have to, right? Yeah, I, I like the idea of it. Anyway, I, I, I mean, the Pink Floyd time intro is epic on its own, but... You've got to find a way to include that. Anyway, this one gets underway at 7.10 p.m. local time, which is 7.40 in New South Wales, where I would presume most GWS fans are. It's 5.40 a.m. on the East Coast of the United States. It's 2.40 a.m. on the West Coast. So for the overwhelming majority of the world, this game will be at some point on Saturday the 16th. Yes, on US TV, it is, of course, Fox Sports 2. Should also note that it'll be at uh, 1.40 p.m. in Victoria. Victoria Seychelles. You didn't give a random country. I did. Ooh, yeah, I should have done it for the other game because that was the one with fewer time zones. Thank you. Four finished third of the home and away. They lost by eight goals to the Brisbane Lions last week at the Gabba. The Giants won by four goals at the G against the Saints to set a new record by winning at their 11th venue in this one season. You have to go back to 2012 to count 11 venues at which Collingwood won. Unfortunately, that number cannot grow any farther because they beat the Crows at Adelaide Oval and they won't get another shot at the GABA. If they win this one, they'll be back at the G for any potential remaining matches. Yeah, and that Adelaide Oval game for the Giants, that was a, a fun fourth quarter comeback. It was, I think, five goals to none. Josh Fahey had an important goal late. He's not factoring into this side, though. They're... Other trip to the Adelaide Oval didn't go so well. It was a 51-point round 22 loss to the power. Toby Bedford and Brent Daniels were both suspended. Finn Callahan was out injured, and it was 45-18 to 18 by the end of the first quarter, and that was just, it, it was kind of cruise control from there for Port Adelaide. It, it was very clear how much those absences hurt. That was the Miles Bergman three-goal first quarter. Where he hadn't kicked a single goal before that all season. He didn't kick another goal for the rest of the year. One quarter, three goals. Rest of the year, no goals. So he played, unless he was subbed out, was he ever? I don't think so. So it would be 91 quarters without goals and one quarter with three goals. Oh, yeah. I guess if you're including the four from this past week. I certainly am. That's that's so cool. Miles, not to be confused with Jason Horde Francis or his brother Miller Berkman, a member of the 22 under 22 team. Again, I think they kind of confused him for Horde Francis there. I mean, he had a good year, too. I just would have put Trent Rivers in ahead of Berkman. So Port Adelaide have won four straight head-to-head meetings with the Giants. No, these clubs have never met in finals. On the injury list for Port Adelaide, things get a little interesting. Yeah, um, leading goal kicker omitted. Interesting. Jeremy Finlayson in the Finlayson Bowl, or the Finlayson Cup, some people would call it. Regardless, he's an emergency. So I imagine that he'd be the sub and would be some tall support late. Now, I would love the inclusion of Frank Evans as the sub, but I find it hard to believe that Finlayson will miss out on this game altogether, even with Charlie Dixon back in, even with Ollie Lord having kicked four goals the week prior, even with Todd Marshall nursing a hip injury and playing through. I would not be shocked if at halftime or sometime in the second half, we would see Finlayson in for Marshall. I think the way 
things went with the sub last week for Port, I think they're going to be a little gun-shy and probably wait as long as they can to use it unless an injury forces their hand. Three-quarter time is what I'm thinking is the latest for, for Finley's son to come in. Because you may recall last week, they put in the paperwork, Trav Boak came on for Darcy Byrne-Jones, and Dylan Williams immediately did his hamstring. He's not in, in this game. Trent McKenzie had a knee issue. He returned to the game. They're backing him in for this game. So no Captain Tom Jonas, who may be on the sidelines anyway with his calf. It is pretty impressive that the whole Tom Jonas not playing thing hasn't like completely blown this club apart. Like that's the sort of thing that could really fuck with chemistry. But yeah, I would have like I would have kept Finlayson in over probably like I don't know Jed McEntee or just put Frank Evans in over McEntee. I, I like the idea of Finlayson as a sub though because of his versatility as just a good mark all over the field and providing some ruck support. Whether what maybe, maybe he gets subbed in for Lysette. I think that's actually more likely than coming in for Marshall. I think Marshall stays in unless he's having another really shitty game. I mean, his hip injury seemed to have impacted his poor kicking last week, which is why I was thinking that. But I think he comes in for one of the other tall options, whether it's Marshall, Dixon, if he's not up to snuff, Lysette. I think Kieran Briggs will have the better of that matchup against Scott Lysette from the beginning. I would assume... Nick Haynes is the sub for the Giants, although you could make a case for Ryan Anglin or even Xavier O'Halloran. Haynes was the sub last week. O'Halloran was the late in when Stephen Canelio had not an eyebrow injury, but an eye injury. I am, okay, no pun intended, I am amazed that they played so well without him. The reason is Josh Kelly and the lack of a tag on him. I mean, and Tom Green as well, but Green is always the guy at the source, whereas Kelly's one of the first guys off those contests, and the tag should have been on him much earlier, as we discussed in our Saints postmortem. Anyway, I'm really excited about one matchup in particular in this game. I said it before, Sam Taylor versus Todd Marshall. I think... Well, is that the matchup? I, I hope so, because it, you basically have the two best one-on-one -on -one marks going head-to-head. -head. You could make a case for it to be Lord, could make a case for it to be Dixon. I'm thinking it would be Jack Buckley against Dixon, size-wise. And I, I mean, I do think it would be Taylor and Marshall. Just kind of playing a little devil's advocate here with the other options. But I think Taylor against Marshall, Buckley against Dixon. Uh, I don't know, maybe you throw, I know he's listed as a halfback, but I think Harry Himmelberg is important against their talls. I mean, Himmelberg could go up against Dixon now, now that I think about it. Yeah, that would actually make a lot of sense. I like that idea. That makes actually more sense. Maybe have Iden as kind of a rover then and put Buckley on board. Thinking about, for example... When the Giants beat the Bulldogs out in Ballarat, Himmelberg was the one to go up against Tim English. So thank you for reminding me of that. And who knows, maybe Himmelberg will take the mark of the finals as well. He's got two of the mark of the year nominees for Brownlow night. So with Port favored by eight and a half, where do you stand on this game? This is one where I could see this ending in a lot of ways. And so you kind of just set the, set the point spread kind of in the middle of those. And I think home field on port side and the fact that they scraped the Giants last time, even though, yes, that was a shorthanded team. I think those things are why this line is where it is, and I see no issue with it. I don't I don't feel all that strongly about possible outcome here. I wouldn't be I feel more confident about Port winning this game than I do about an outcome in the Melbourne Carlton game. And going with that, the most likely blowout would be a port blowout this round. Yeah, so I think I think a Giants blowout is still more likely than either team winning by blowout in the other game. I, I just I just see Melbourne Carlton being locked in as a close game, whether it's fun or not. Who does Willem Drew tag? Is it Canelio? Is it Kelly? Is it Tom Green? Great question. Do you also use maybe Kane Farrell to do a little of that? I uh, didn't see, don't see him doing that as much. Drew tends to be the guy and he tends to be in at the source, so... Maybe you'd just have him going up against Tom Green and try to spring Zach Butters free off that. Ooh, I kind of like that. The more I think about this matchup, there are just so many players that I like on both of these teams, and I'm excited. I, I just hope this is a good game because the last few meetings between these teams have trended towards, you know, kind of forgettable. I mean, what I remember about this game was Port wearing their throwbacks. Which looked awesome. And by the way, I think they did it against the Giants because Adam Kingsley's coaching them, and he was in their 04 Premiership side. Let's see, the Giants won by one at the Adelaide Oval in 2019. That's their most recent win head-to-head. -head. Yeah. Since then, 
Uh, their last couple trips there have been bad. So they played at Metricon in both 20 and 21, Port winning those by 17 and 27. Then last year, 84 to 29. Yeah. And this year, the 51-point win. So we're due for a good game between these teams. Since we started watching footy, we haven't really had like a memorable matchup. So I'm I'm all in for this. Let's let's make this fun. I am so fucking ready. So on that note, only two games to choose from, but uh, main character for the weekend of footy, Ethan. Ooh man, uh, Stephen May for good or bad reasons. No idea. That's why I'm picking him. It's kind of why you picked Brody Majacek last time, huh? Exactly. Hmm, I do want to go on field for this one. And for that reason, Jason Horn Francis. Going to go with some big names here. Horn Francis showed up big time in the game in round 22. It was a really deep performance from that midfield altogether with Horn Francis, Rosie, Wines, Butters all showing up. I think it was like a 7 7 5 5 5 1 split in the coaches' votes or something crazy like that. I want to check this now. Really, it. It was a really good one, though. It was all port players. I remember this. Let's go back to round 22. Yeah, it's interesting that we got uh, two round 22 rematches, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it was... I was right. Port Francis and Wines with seven each. Butters, Rosie, and Houston with five. Bergman with one. So, uh, with that, we're done here. And I want to get to editing right away, because I want this up before I head off to work in the morning. I'm probably not sleeping again. But yeah, cat named Brian on Instagram, Castle Media and Americans Footy and Benjamin HK01 on Twitter. 